What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? What is going on? What is the latest and greatest? How's everybody doing out there? Hope everybody's feeling well, that your week is off to a tremendous start here on this President's Monday. And as I share my thoughts and opinions and also entertain you over the course of the next hour or so on everything that's happening in the world of sports here on the J Reels Podcast with yours truly. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been now, bang with me for 114 episodes. I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, February the 17th in the year of our Lord 2020. The J Reels, what's the deal segment? That's right. What to expect here over the course of the next hour and change is as follows. Miles Garrett reinstated back into the NFL. Of course, the incident that happened in Cleveland, the night where Mason Rudolph and the Pittsburgh Steelers going up against Cleveland Browns and Miles Garrett, the suspension that was forthcoming, and then now he's back in the league. But here he is, not even five minutes later, and he has some disparaging things to say about the quarterback. You know I have a lot to chew on when it comes to that. That'll be later on the podcast. Of course, we'll get into the NBA. The All-Star Weekend has come and gone. I know the fiasco there from Saturday night, the slam dunk competition with Aaron Gordon getting robbed. But also last night's game, which I didn't watch. So let me preface it by saying that. But I get that it was very popular amongst the people that were watching with the different format. Obviously, the tribute to Kobe Bryant. So we'll talk about that later on, as well as a wild week for the NHL, almost a tragic week. So that was one that they would likely forget in light of Alexander Ovechkin being two goals away from 700. We'll also get into college basketball, the XFL. And who would have thought that two weeks after the Super Bowl, that we would sit here and go through this sports dead zone wondering, what could we talk about? Obviously, the winter sports, basketball. The hockey, we want to get into the college basketball. We understand pitchers and catchers have now reported throughout all of baseball. But it's weird to think that two weeks in, we've had so much to digest, regurgitate, especially with this Astros thing. And I know that people are sick and tired of it. I'm sure that they just want this to go away. And it's not going to go away anytime soon because of what had transpired here over the last few days. And let's go back to Thursday because this is just a subject It's almost as if that you moved into a million-dollar home and you have all these boxes that you're looking at and they're not even labeled. So it's not as if you have stuff that's going to the kitchen, stuff that's going to the dining room, stuff that's going to the bedrooms, whatever. You're just looking at a ton of brown boxes and you're staring at it knowing that you have to start at one, but there's so many more to unpack after that that makes your head spin. And this is the situation here with the Astros and everything that has transpired, especially since Thursday, I guess we're now 30, no, 72 to 96 hours. And we're going to start there because there are so many different angles, whether it comes to the owner, whether it comes to the players on the team, which obviously we'll delve into, the players throughout baseball, the commissioner, and th- this could be a whole podcast right here. And I'm going to try to be as concise as possible with my analysis and my opinions and thoughts because I don't want this to be a thing where 40 minutes in and we're still talking about this. Because as I said just a second ago, this is something that could garner its own podcast. So we'll start from Thursday where Jim Crane had the press conference there. A lot of the veterans that showed up, they also had a podium next to the table there, this makeshift speakers panel or table where The owner, Jim Crane, was sitting there with Dusty Baker. And I understand Dusty has to sit there almost to, I don't want to say deflect any of the questions or any of the onslaught that's going to come from the media there because now he is the representative 
of the players when it comes to this team. But at the same time, as we all know, Dusty was not there. So number one, that's where they screwed up as far as just getting this thing off and running. And I get that. You have to have the manager there at some point. But this should have been Jim Crane's show. And whomever is the PR director, the top guy there, as far as the public relations is concerned, that person needs to get their pink slip. If they haven't gotten it already, that's an embarrassment. Because they did an awful job setting this whole thing up and having Crane face the music. And we get that Crane isn't going to be a politician in a sense where he's going to be savvy. He's going to be concise. That he's going to bumble a little bit. He's going to babble, which he certainly did. And there was no order or no type of direction from the PR department to say, okay, Mr. Crane, this is how we should take this on full steam and try to handle this as swiftly and as quickly. And not only that, but also as in-depth as possible. Because that they knew the media was just going to come full bore with questions galore. And he had to sit there and take it as the owner of this team. So Crane was just awful in his delivery here. Obviously, he, just like all the players did, resorted to, well, the commissioner's report said this. That was his fallback for pretty much every answer. And we understand that's what they're going to use. Maybe the PR department, they shared that to say, hey, always just go back to that. Whatever they try to ask you, they're going to ask you these questions in a million different forms. Just go back to the commissioner's report. But the two things that bother me about Crane here, the first one was when they probed them as far as impacting the game and what type of effect did the cheating did in the 2017 season. So Crane answers that, oh, well, it didn't impact the game. The game's being played and we should keep the World Series, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I'm paraphrasing here. And then there was a follow-up where the, I guess the same reporter, whomever that was, said, well, wait a minute. You said it didn't impact the game. In what way did it not impact the game or have an effect on the game? And then he follows up by saying, well, I didn't say it didn't impact the game. Well, which one is it? So when you hear that right off the bat from the guy who's the top of the food chain, and again, we understand that he's not going to go up there and he's going to look like or sound like Barack Obama. But for him to fumble that within a matter of seconds just made you realize that, oh, geez, this is just going to be a disaster. And it was. So Crane was awful in that regard. And then when they had the podium next to Crane and Dusty Baker to where they had Alex Bregman and Jose Altuve show up, and Bregman had a 34-second apology, no questions asked, and again, we're going to get to the players later on. But for him to go up there and spew this worthless apology, as well as Altuve doing the same thing, they might as well just kick that podium aside and just have the players in the clubhouse deal with the reporters then, which was a lot better than what you got to start off, and when I watched that, I couldn't believe it. I said, is this all we're going to get from any of the players here? That they weren't going to be able to ask the players any questions? I mean, later on, I found out that wasn't the case, but this is where the PR department just needs to be sent right out the door. They need to be sent packing, quick, fast, in a hurry, and it was just a disgrace to the organization. Now, I'm far from a PR guy, as everybody knows. I get that, but that certainly could have been handled a million times better. I'm sorry, a person who's deaf would have looked at that and said like, oh, you got to fire these guys. That's how bad it was. And of course, why Dusty is sitting there is just a disgrace. I mean, what does he have to add other than maybe the question, well, hey, how do you handle dealing with the players and this team moving forward knowing everything that's happened here over the last few years? But that's it. Other than that, what else is Dusty going to say? 
So to me, that was a bad job on the PR department, the Astros, everything. So now that's just, put that aside, now let's move on to the players. Now the players seem very contrite where the reporters were able to get into the locker room, they get to speak to everybody. The first person who came out really well in this was Carlos Correa, and he certainly is pretty much front and center on all this because if you've seen all the interviews after that with a Ken Rosenthal, he had that nine-minute deal where he's throwing Cody Bellinger under the bus. We'll get into Cody Bellinger in a little bit. But the players certainly did seem contrite. They certainly were apologetic. It seemed a little genuine. It didn't seem fake. It didn't seem as if it was a facade there. When you look at Alex Bregman, and they pretty much said the same thing over and over. Oh, we're remorseful. We're sorry. This is the type of team that we are. Whatever it was. And you heard that over and over and over again. Even Justin Verlander. Now, Jose Altuve, on the other hand, he's another one. Obviously, he said the same thing what the players did. But now, the big thing is when it comes to the walk-off home run that he hit off a Roldis Chapman in Game 6 of the League Championship Series last year, he pretty much deflected that to the commissioner's report. Well, the commissioner's report didn't, refine, didn't find anything. So, therefore, there was no buzzers. There was nothing that we did last year to affect the game as far as that at bat is concerned and how I look at that and let me just touch on this real quick Altuve's a phony I'm sorry for him to come out with that with the whole situation going into the locker room taking off his jersey we all know about him tugging on his jersey as he's approaching home plate after the home run and you can see he's saying hey don't pull off my jersey Later on, you find out through Carlos Correa, of all people, that he had a bad tattoo that he was trying to cover and he didn't want the shirt to come off. He had an undershirt underneath. So please, it's just the lamest excuse of all time. And the thing is, which is bad, and we'll get to Manfred in a little bit. The thing that's bad about it is, is that the commissioner's report or the report going back to this whole investigation shows that in 2019 that the Astros did not cheat, that this was mostly 2017 and the first part of 2018. But then they didn't find anything in 2019. Well, this buzzer situation is going to be one that's going to live in infamy forever. Because the way Altuve is answering these questions, the way he's acting, as if he's innocent. And I'm sorry, I guess you're right. In this country, innocence will prove guilty. But I'm sorry, to me, he's 1,000% guilty on this. Because if it was just as simple as him saying, go to the commissioner's report, well, they didn't find anything. No, where was the reporter asking him, what about you? Did you have a device on? And obviously he's going to deny it whether or not he's not going to say, yeah, I did have one on, which is terrible because this is his time to fess up, to tell the land, to tell the baseball universe and the sports universe, this is the truth. And we get that people, they're going to laugh at him whether he admits the truth or not. But if he admits the truth today or two days ago, whatever it was, and says, yes, I did do it. I did have a buzzer. Yes, I did know it was a slider coming. They will hate him for it. They will vilify him. The respect will be lost. But at the same time, the one thing that they cannot knock would be his dignity and his integrity. And if it ever does come out in the future that he did have a buzzer on and he didn't know that pitch was coming, then boy, I feel he's as phony as it is to begin with. He'll be an all-time phony if that's the case. So that's the deal with Altuve. I'll just put that aside because, again, this is something that I can just go on forever with. And I just don't want to bore you to tears with all this because I'm sure in the last three days you've heard it all. But obviously, I got to share my thoughts and feelings on this. So that's the situation with Altuve. Now, Correa handled this perfectly from the start. 
one of the questions was asked about Beltron. He said, hey, listen, guys, Beltron didn't influence us by any means. We're, it's up to us to take a stand for us not to want to be a part of this, for us to say, hey, guys, let's cut this out. And he pretty much said great things about Beltron. Now, I don't know if you want to look at it from the Latino connection. They're both Puerto Rican. That could be a possibility because it doesn't seem to me I've heard of any comments from other players in reference to Beltron and only the ones that resonated the most were Carlos Correa's. And I don't want to say that there's a bias there because as we all know, Beltron has been a great guy and a lot of people have respected him over the course of his career. But going back to Correa, as far as he's concerned, for him to then come out and just be candid and open about it, it made you think that, all right, well, the Astros knew they did a bad thing. They knew that this championship is going to be tainted for life. And they, this is something that they're going to have to accept from here on out. All right, great, fantastic. So from that public opinion or from the eye of the public opinion, at least you could look at it and say, all right, well, they certainly didn't pussyfoot or try to sugarcoat or whatever other than Altuve with the 2019 deal. So now Correa has this interview after Cody Bellinger made his comments saying that Aaron Judge should have been the MVP that everything that he did was a disgrace to baseball. And he was right for all the things that he said. But the one thing that I don't agree with, Cody Bellinger, when he says, oh, they stole a ring from us. Well, then what happened in game two when Marlon Gonzalez hit a home run off of Kenley Jansen in the ninth inning at Dodger Stadium? And then in game seven, when you had a chance to win at home again, you lose that game. So, right, game five, I understand, is going to be the focal point where Clayton Kershaw, who's been awful throughout his postseason career for him, to have a 4-0 lead and then a 7-4 lead and just to give it right back. If you want to say that there were some signs stealing then and some signals that were certainly being in the Astros' favor at that point, rightfully so. And even though Correa went through the whole gamut of the innings and the comeback and the Guriel home run and his double off of Kershaw, everything. I think that there were some signs that were being transmitted to the players for them to get rolling, being down four and down three during this baseball game, game five of the World Series. So Correa, oh, going back to Bellinger, excuse me. So for them to say he stole the ring, nonsense. To me, it's a little bit of sour grapes and I get its frustration. Obviously, I'm not a Dodger player. I'm not on the team. I get that. But there were two games in their building that they could have won. And finally have captured their World Series that they haven't received since 1988, a la Kirk Gibson. You just have to grin and bear it. So tough on him. But then Correa comes out and obviously defends his team. A little skittish with some of his remarks. I get that he's going to say, this is how the game was played for many years. We cheated in 2017 and part of 18, but not in 19. We certainly cut it out, which is also nonsense too. Sadly, the old saying goes, if you're going to cheat, you're going to continue to do so until you get caught. So what makes you think that, okay, 2017, they have proof, and maybe the beginning of 2018, but as you get toward the end of 2018 and into 19, that, oh, we finally pulled the plug on this and we stopped this. Nonsense. I'm sorry. Then I got a bridge to sell in Brooklyn, if that's the case. They got to go back to the commissioner's report. We know about that. So when it comes to this whole grand scheme, and you could come at him with so many different directions with questions and legitimate ones at that. Whether it's the buzzer for Altuve, whether it's the sign stealing in game five, whether whatever it is throughout the course of these last three years, 
They're going to say, well, the commissioner's report said this. And if that's what it said, then it's gospel. And unfortunately, we're never going to get those answers. And to me, it's more about the buzzer thing because 2017 and 18, okay, fine, whatever. But the 2019 situation with the home run of Altuve, and I'll say this. In defense of Altuve, that pitch that Chapman threw was a 2-1 slider. Now remember, his fastball was all over the place. So his slider was the only pitch that was actually working that night. This was the anti-Carlos Beltran 2006 Adam Wainwright curveball where Babe Ruth couldn't hit that pitch. I could have hit that pitch to Dallas because if you watch that replay of the final at bat there, that final pitch to Altuve, that sucker hung for about an hour. And I could have slammed it out of the ballpark. So, you know, it wasn't a slider that was at his toes. It wasn't a slider that was biting and somehow, some way he turned on it. That slider was as flat as a pancake. And he hit it a million miles. And again, I am not an Astro fan. I'm not an Atuve apologist. But when you watch that pitch, just like the Adam Wainwright curveball, and they laugh at Beltron to this day, the Met fan, the baseball fan, whatever, but I'm sorry. I've said it. Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Ted Williams, they would have not hit that pitch. Not. And in this case, I could have hit that pitch. That's how flat it was. So let's just put that aside, put that in the universe, and that's it. Now, as far as Manfred is concerned, he also dropped the ball here. I get that the penalties were harsh between Hinch and Lunau, and of course they're long gone. And I get Hinch was the whole thing that started this thing with the MLB Network interview that he had, and you know he should have done a better job, and he did say that he, although he tried to stop it, or he did try to put a stop on it, but he certainly wasn't as persistent and as consistent to get the deal done as far as having their team knock it off and not being able to steal these signs. But when you have Manfred there defending the punishment, and we get that the punishment was harsh. Losing the GM, the manager, $5 million was the most that could be taxed or the most that could be fined to the owners, and losing first and second round draft picks this year next. That's a lot. And we understand the players' immunity, which is a little bit of a joke, I get that you can't have players suspended for two to three weeks at a time. I mean, you're not going to suspend, let's say, Altuve for the first month if you wanted to go that harsh. And then when Altuve comes back, then you can suspend Correa or whatever it is. Because the bottom line is they wanted to get the ringleader, the guy who was the mastermind behind this. And the players are going to follow. And of course, it's easy to want to suspend the guy like Altuve or Correa or whatever. But unless Altuve was the one who came up with this or Correa, then you're going to suspend them. I mean, that's how I look at it. You're always going to look at the top to who started this. And unless a player did absolutely say, hey, Carlos Beltran, I know a way we could seal these signs. How about putting some monitors here and banging some trash cans? If he was responsible for that, then he deserves to get suspended. But we all know that's not the case. It started higher up than that. In this case, it was Beltran and Cora. And we see they're paying a big price. Not Beltran as of yet, but you know where I'm coming from. So now Manfred has to deal with this fallout because Crane should have also been suspended for a year. Maybe not a year, maybe six months, which is technically a baseball season. Not only how he handled this press conference, and of course not just based on the press conference that he should suspend them, but as much as Crane didn't know about this, sorry, he deserved to get suspended on top of this. Considering he, even though he came out bombastic, oh, this is inexcusable at the time when, right when he fired 
AJ Hinch and Jeff Lunau that he was certainly vociferous and stating that, oh, this is unacceptable, it's not going to happen on my watch, et cetera, et cetera. And then now, after everything has come out of the wash and rinse in this whole thing, and then his press conference, he also should have been suspended. So, and Manfred, he's going to have a lot of questions to ask, not only in reference to that, but also 2019. How does 2019 fly under the radar here? Granted, they didn't win a World Series, and granted that the focal point is 2017, but in this whole investigation, and that... Buzzer and that that evidence coming around home plate, seeing Altuve tug his jersey, then go into the locker room to change out of that jersey to put on another one, that's not suspicious? Did his people in Major League Baseball, whoever, whomever was investigating this, did not see that? Did not look at that and say, wait a second, let's dig a little deeper here to find out what's going on and go to Altuve and say, hey, fess up. Was there a buzzer on you or not? Plain and simple. And if he were to lie about it, then obviously that's on him. That's not on Manfred. But I'm sure Altuve, who's hasn't said much about it, oh, go back to the commissioner's report, and not watching that whole press conference in the locker room, I just saw snippets. I was trying to get the whole thing. I couldn't find it. I'm sure that had to be reported. I asked him, did you have a buzzer on? And I'm sure if, he, if they did ask him that, he's going to say no, which is a disgrace. But at the same time, well, I'm sure we'll probably find out about that somewhere down the road. It'll be in a book somewhere or someone will uncover it and then, geez. And that's why the situation is not going to go away. But as crazy as that may sound, because as we get closer to the spring training games and then obviously into the regular season, this thing's going to hang over this, ho- this team for as long as they're together. And the reason why, and I said this weeks ago, the reason why they just sort of came out and fessed up on everything is because only at that point it will go away. So if Altuve, as much as he would lose a lot of respect, but as far as his, as I said, dignity and integrity is concerned, if he said, yes, I had a buzzer on me, he probably he would have gotten suspended right off the bat. No doubt about it. And on top of that, I'm sure whomever was the mastermind behind that, because remember, Beltran was not there at that time and Cora was in Boston. So there may have been somebody else behind this, whether it was Lou now or another bench coach or whomever. But that's why this thing is going to continue no matter what. And I'm sure there's going to be a story that's going to unfold. Maybe not in the days to come or weeks to come. But maybe sometime during the slow months of the summer. Maybe an all-star break. There's going to be some revelation where, oh, we have proof that Jose Altuve had a buzzer on. And this is why Manfred, as far as exploring everything over the last three years, this is where he fell short. Because that's the $64,000 question that's... Obviously, it hasn't been answered right now, and who knows if it ever will be. And that's on him, or at least his people that were investigating this. Now, real quick, the other few things I want to talk about are some of the players and their comments. I know Chris Bryant discussed it, and he certainly was unhappy stating his displeasure about what the Astros did. Hugh Darvis says that they should be stripped of a title. Now, Darvis got bombed in the Game 7, as we all know, and also Game 3, who didn't pitch well. So, I understand Game 3 was in Houston, but Game 7 was at home, and that was a disaster. Springer hits a grand slam, and then I believe Altuve had a home run later in that game. So, however he wants to come out, he could certainly have a lot of sour grapes, but that's certainly not going to stay this case because he pissed awful. Also, when it comes to stripping these titles, I know whether it's the Yankee fan, the Dodger fan, whatever, let's face it, people. If you want to put an asterisk next to it, 
in your own mind, fine. If you feel like they don't deserve the title, that's great too. But for them to go into Minute Maid to take down the banner, number one, also pull the trophy out of their case, probably when you walk into that building or wherever it may be held in the owner's office, who knows. But then not only that, what are they going to do? They're going to get all 25 players involved and everybody in the organization. Okay, also give the rings back too. It's a joke. For them, for people to come out and say that, I mean, what do they know about sports? I understand the same people may say, well, look what happened with the Fab Five. They have all the banners. Well, that's college. College is different. And it's different from this regard because they're they're not professional players. NCAA has their rules. And reason wise for them to bring banners down or strip titles or things of that nature. Look at Reggie Bush. He had his Heisman Trophy 2005 taken away. That's an individual award. Get that. It's not a team award. But college is much different than pro sports. And in pro sports, if you want to take down the banner in your own mind, soul, heart, whatever, then fine. So be it. It's the same person that feels that Barry Bonds, if he gets to the Hall of Fame, oh, he shouldn't be a Hall of Famer, there should be an asterisk next to it. Hey, go right ahead. We get that. But to strip the title, what does that mean? So nobody won a title that year? It's vacated because, all right, the Astros cheated and that's bad for the integrity of the sport and et cetera. And I certainly don't condone it. But now we're not going to have a World Series winner? No, it's already in the books. Sorry. Doesn't make sense. So for those people out there, just, ugh. That just bothers me to no end. And then to wrap up on this, and then with Bellinger, I know his comments, I did say that earlier, you know, stealing a ring and all that. And I understand that they're bitter. And But the one thing about it, whether it's Bellinger's comments, Bryant, Darvish, you go down the list. And even some of the players that were on that 2017 team, whether it's Charlie Morton, Marwin Gonzalez, even Tony Kemp, a guy that was called up in September of 2017. He said, I didn't partake in any sign stealing. He just kept his head down, played hard, and didn't concern himself about it. Which was good on him. And I get it. He just gets called up. What is he going to do? He's going to blow the whistle on these guys? And also, Correa made some comments about Mike Fires, which, uh, of course, what is he going to say? Oh, but the truth's not out there. Well, all right. Well, <laughs> this whole thing is just a giant mess. But the one positive, if there is such a thing as a positive, and then I'll move on to other things, is that the baseball season is going to have some juice. At least for the first, maybe I would say maybe the first couple of weeks of the season. I can't say the whole season. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this could have an effect of where the 2010-11 Miami Heat and what they did for the NBA as being the villains, the Astros are going to be that this year. And it's going to make for fascinating developments as far as who's going to watch. I'm sure for attendance, the boo factor, the everything. And as talented as this Houston Astro team is, we're going to see how tough they are. Mentally, emotionally, psychologically, etc. Because they are going to get 50 earfuls from crowds in Anaheim, Oakland when they start the season, especially Oakland. Because Bob Melvin had a lot to say, and of course Mike Fires, who I believe is still in Oakland on the team. And when they go to some of these cities, Boston, the towns that obviously have good competitive teams, where they're going to feel this from here to Timbuktu. This is going to reverberate throughout baseball, especially for the first couple of weeks of the season. And it's good because it's going to put some juice into the sport where we all know it's a 162-game marathon. After the opening day, opening weekend, nobody's going to care. But this story, as long as it's part of the fabric, 
And it's going to be, and I'm sure people are sick and tired of it as it is to begin with, but until more comes out, and we know there's going to be probably a little bit more, as I said earlier, it's going to be fascinating to see how this unfolds and it's certainly going to add a, just an extra element to the start of this baseball season that hopefully it could ride out through the summer and everybody's going to put them on notice to see how well they're going to do without the cheating, how well they're going to do as far as the team's concerned. And we know they have the talent, but now let's see if they could put that all aside when they get to play in between the white lines and see if they could be as productive as they have been over the last three years. All right, and it's a couple other quick baseball things that I want to throw into. This playoff scenario that's come out now, it hasn't been official, but with the CBA ending after the 2021 season, Major League Baseball's adding a playoff scenario where they're going to add two more teams to the mix. So you're going to have actually seven teams from each league. That's 14. It's almost NBA, NHL-like, which they're trying to generate a lot more interest when it comes to baseball. I'm sure with the younger fan, to the traditionalists like myself, I don't like it, and I'll explain in a second. But what they're planning to do is add two more teams so where they have the team with the best record in each league, they'll have a bye. And then from two through seven, or two, three, and four, or really two and three, they'll pick in a somewhat selection Sunday type program where they'll pick their opponent to play in a best of three that all three games will be at home. So let's just say for argument's sake, if the Yankees, well, the Astros had the best record in the league last year, in the American League. So the Yankees were second. So the Yankees would pick the five, six, and seven which one of those three teams that they'd want to face? Chances are you figured they'd pick the seventh, which would be the weakest. But who knows? Maybe they have a good pitching. Maybe they, they have weak hitting, whatever it may be. It just all shakes down as to what their advantages are to play against that team. And then you'd have the Twins, who had the third best record. They would pick whatever out of the five, six, and seven. And then obviously whoever's fourth, they would pick the team that's remaining. The one thing I don't like about that, despite the fact that it may bring a little bit of intrigue or suspense why don't you just go ahead and have the two seed play the seven seed the three seed play the six four and the five that's it why can't it just be that why is it that the Yankees let's say for argument's sake they could go ahead and pick the sixth seed or the fifth seed because they feel that maybe they have a better advantage against that team to me that's nonsense I mean who wants that that's the one thing I don't like about it I don't like the expansion part I get that they don't want teams tanking down the stretch. I get that they want to have as many teams in the mix as far as getting a playoff berth is concerned. I get that. And also having the first round being just the best of three in their ballpark. And then from there, you'll move on to the division series and then the championship series and so on. But this is what baseball wants to do. I don't like it. I hope it doesn't come to that. I'm sure it is going to come to that as far as adding those two teams in each league. I understand it may make the Mets. For instance, last year, if it was that scenario, the Mets would have been in the playoffs. All right, great. But then you may have the argument, let's say the two seed, whoever that is, they win 105 games. And then the Mets, they win 86. And because the Mets have Jacob DeGrom, Noah Syndergaard, they have a very good rotation. They go ahead and beat the team that won 105 games. And then, oh, geez, that team in that city, they're going to bitch and moan about, oh, they see it's not fair. Why are the Mets in there? They only have 86 wins. So there there may be some backlash to that. But we're not going to know because until this is approved and obviously the first year takes into effect to be 2022, then we could certainly chew on it and see how it all unfolds. But until then, we're not going to know. This is all speculation. 
So that's what you have there. And then Ron Renneke is your interim manager in Boston. Now, obviously he's interim because until the investigation is done with the Red Sox, and if Rob Manfred, based on this experience here, he has to go full bore on this, knowing that he needs to get every iota of information to make sure that if Renneke was a part of this, he's going to have to be given the heave-ho. That's why he's the interim manager, which is a joke on the Red Sox part. Why did they do that? Why can't they just get somebody outside the organization? They didn't want to pay Buck Showalter? They didn't want to look at Mike Socia? I'm sure they could have gotten somebody else. Maybe, why not put Jason Varitek there? And I get that maybe a bit of a reach or a stretch, but to have Ron Renneke as an interim to say, hey, listen, if you're not implicated in this investigation, then we'll keep you. But if by chance your fingerprints are all over this, then we're going to have to let you go. I mean, that's a joke. Bad enough as, the, as they're reporting, pitchers and catchers, they didn't have a manager in tow. Now, let's say after two, three weeks or whenever this investigation finally gets uncovered, then they're going to release him? I, it's just a joke. Ah, it's an abomination. It really is. And then two other things. Tony Fernandez, the old shortstop Toronto Blue Jay, actually was a Met and Yankee at one point in his career. Uh, also Cleveland Indian died of kidney disease which is terrible 57 years old way too young so very sad to hear about that news over the weekend as 2020 I tell you has been unkind to the athlete or former athlete I tell you and we talked about it before we need to go need to go to the whole list but we're just six weeks into the year and we've already lost quite a few people here so Thoughts, prayers go out to the Fernandez family. And I didn't mention this, but uh, Wilma Flores, a one-time Met, he's in San Francisco right now. So that really flew under the radar. And I just want to put that out there because obviously he was a good Met and everything that he stood for, 2015, the tears, etc. So I just wanted to throw that into the baseball mix. So now let's segue from that. We could get off of that and get back to the winter sports because that was just the news of the week, let alone the news of the day. So uh, thank you for letting me babble and entertain at the same time on that whole Astros deal. The NBA had a bittersweet weekend from this regard. We know about the tributes to Kobe Bryant, which were done excellent, whether Magic Johnson coming out and adding his uh, little flair to that. I know Common also came out and did his thing with uh, Dwayne Wade. Of course, Dwayne Wade from Chicago. We all know about the numbers, two for Gianna Bryant. Kobe's daughter and obviously 24 and then making the all-star game MVP now the Kobe Bryant award which was great considering 18 all-stars he won four MVPs no problem with that as far as the game itself I know people are gonna be like what I didn't watch everybody knows the all-star games and I get it this year was special and it was different and so on and so forth but I didn't watch and I know from everything that I've read whether it's social media or some of the columnists that they said, wow, this is the most riveting basketball. And But for the also from what I read, for the first three quarters, you know, nobody plays defense. We all know that this is an exhibition. But then when the heat of the moment came, when it got pedaled to the metal, that's when everybody started to ratchet up their games. And yes, did it make for thrilling basketball? Sure. But at the same time, it's something I'm not interested in. It's an all-star game. Will people remember this 10 years from now? Five years from now? Two years from now? Are they going to adopt this from here on out as far as the All-Star game is concerned? Or are they just doing this for the one-year thing because of the unfortunate events of Kobe Bryant? Now, I don't know if they're going to do this moving forward. Maybe they will. Who knows? Just to bring eyeballs to the sets. Just to have extra juice. Whatever it may be. But 
I'm sorry. I'm not into that stuff. And I get I may be the minority in this. And people may look at me. Oh, you're a bad sports fan, Jay Reels, whatever. But like I said, five years from now, is anybody going to care about this? Ten years from now? Even if they do this year after year, it's an all-star game. All-star. This isn't the playoffs. This isn't a final. This isn't a regular season. Lakers, Clippers, where, oh, now they're going to add this 24-point thing at the end. No, it's not. Who cares? I don't care. And the same thing for the slam dunk competition. I understand Aaron Gordon got robbed. What did he have? Five dunks of 50? It's, it's the one that he hit off the backboard and he did the 360 win. That was, uh that was majestic. And to me, that was the best dunk of the night. No offense to what Derrick Jones did. And he had some nice dunks, don't get me wrong. But because Aaron Gordon's long and off the backboard and just the way he twisted his body and he just, oh, that was just, it was like Vince Carter's reverse 360 dunk in the 2000 slam dunk competition. But for all that was said, and the Taco Fall dunk because he hit Taco Fall on the head. Now Taco Fall, he's, the guy's a giant. What is he, 7'6"? So if he hit him in the back of the head a little bit, I mean, geez, I can see if he railroaded him. But they gave him, what, a 47 on that, which made way for Derrick Jones to win the award. And we understand he got robbed. But at the, again, same time. Does anybody care? On April 1st, or when the opening weekend of the NBA playoff starts, and hopefully you have some riveting storylines, is anybody going to care about Aaron Gordon losing the dunk contest? People need to find something else better to do if that's the case. And I get that it's a slow weekend, and I get it's all about the All-Star game, and the sports world is pretty much shining its light on the city of Chicago. But at the same time, again, people, I, I can't voice it enough. Sorry for Aaron Gordon. He probably deserved it. And it reminded you of 1988, where a lot of people thought Dominique Wilkins should have beaten Michael Jordan. But because Jordan had the free throw, or I should say the dunk from the free throw line, that pretty much iced it for him. And Dominique was spectacular. A lot of people thought Wilkins got robbed. And I understand that was historic from a standpoint of it was in Chicago. It was Jordan versus Dominique. They're two Hall of Famers. This is Aaron Gordon and Derrick Jones. Not to be confused with Dominique Wilkins and Michael Jordan. No offense to those guys. They're in the league. They've been playing a bit. We know Gordon and Zach Levine had that dunk contest a few years ago. But at the end of the day, is anybody going to lose sleep over it? I think not. You also had Buddy Heald win the three-point competition on the final shot against Devin Booker, for those who are wrapped up in that. And then Bam Adebayo wins the skills challenge. So Miami was certainly represented winning two of the three events during All-Star Saturday. And then the game yesterday, Team LeBron won over Giannis and Kawhi was your MVP for those that were jumping up and down about that. Now, as far as the game is concerned or the league, now we understand with the All-Star break, you had the big story last week was the Nets beating the Raptors at home, which snapped the 15-game winning streak from the Toronto Raptors. So they will start over here in the quote-unquote second half of the season, but we all know they've played more than half of their games. A lot of teams have played, what, 55, 56 games? But as we take a little pulse of the NBA here, a lot of the games will start up on Thursday. As a matter of fact, I think you only have what? Oh, no, you have a pretty much a full slate. Six games. I thought maybe you just had the two TNT games. Uh, in fact, what are the TNT games? Uh, Nets Sixers in Philly and then Rockets Warriors, which we understand the Warriors are going to get a lot of play despite the fact that they have the worst record in the league, but nobody thought that Steph Curry would be out for as long as he is. And for my, that being said, Steph shouldn't even play the rest of the year. Let them get a top pick, whatever it may be, and away they go. But when we take a look at the NBA landscape, it's pretty much the same as last week and what we talked about. 
the team who's going to be the team that challenges the Bucks in the East, considering they have the best record in the league at 46 and 8. Obviously, if you're in the 2-3 seed as Toronto and Boston are right now, it bodes well for them in a sense where you don't have to see them walk into a conference final. But we understand a lot can change. I know Miami hit the skids there a little bit right before the end of the or right before the All-Star break. And then we talked about Philly, Indiana, Brooklyn, Orlando. And then we have Washington, three games behind Orlando. But you would think, unless they collapse, that they should be safe. And then out west, we know the Lakers are in charge there, 41-12. and 12. They actually beat Denver right before the break at uh, the Mahai City. But Denver sitting a game ahead of the Clippers, followed by Utah, Houston, OKC, Dallas, Memphis, now, here's the thing. If you're Houston, OKC, Dallas, and I'll even throw Utah in the mix, even though they have a two-game lead over Houston right now, five and a half, seven and a half back of the Lakers, but they're two games ahead of Houston. That is going to be interesting because you want to try to get a home court if you're Houston in the first round against Utah, but then what happens is the second round, you're going to face the Lakers. So if you're OKC, Dallas, Maybe you kind of want to stay there because you avoid playing the Lakers as late as you possibly can. And then you have Memphis, who are four games ahead of Portland. And I know New Orleans is the team that everybody's going to look at right here because they've certainly turned their season around even before Zion was part of the mix here. But they are five and a half games back and they have Portland and San Antonio ahead of them. But they're a team that they're going to be looked at because not only of Zion... But of course, the potential that they have with all the young players on their team and with how many games left doing the math, 23, 32, 55. So with 27 games to go, let's see if they can make up enough ground to try to sneak into that eighth seed. But as we all know, Memphis has certainly played very well here, backed by John Morant. And that's pretty much your NBA as we get ready to start a second half of the season here on Thursday. Uh, real quick, uh, you know what? I don't want to waste my time on the over-unders because since we're now, quote-unquote, at the halfway point, next week I'll give you my over-unders. Obviously, I spent a lot of time with the Astros and I don't want this to go drag on for an hour and a half, people. But uh, right now, just to give you a little quick overview on that, though, I will say I'm at 500, which is deplorable. It's average, but to me it's deplorable. But there are some that are on the fence. There's some that are... I have some that are locked, some that are on the fence, and some that are just bad. So we'll certainly delve into that a little bit later on. Uh, the course of the podcast next Monday. As far as the NHL is concerned, now they had a rough week, man. To start off the week, they had Alexander Ovechkin was two goals away from 700, which would be the eighth player in the history of the league to get that. Mike Gartner actually is at 708, so he'd be the next one who was a longtime Washington Capitol, I might add. But the anticipation for Ovechkin to make the 700 club certainly was overshadowed, and he's... Still two away from that, but was certainly overshadowed by the events that happened in Anaheim there, I believe it was Wednesday night, with Jay Bowmeister collapsing on the bench in a game at Anaheim, first period. He was just on the bench and he just happened to keel over, unfortunately. Players were waving their arms to have the medical staff come over and the Anaheim medical staff, which the game was uh, at the Honda Center out in California, they certainly were very instrumental in getting Bowmeister back to consciousness and just an ugly scene and we've seen that over the years unfortunately whether it was uh, Rich Peverly years ago I think it was uh, 2014 when he was with Dallas and then Yuri Fisher of the Red Wings in 2015 so you've had these incidents where these players have just 
collapsed or passed out. And thankfully, you know, they're still here with us. It hasn't become fatal or catastrophic. But uh, certainly that was a bad optic there. And thankfully that Bowmeister, they had a procedure done. Uh, something, I believe, somewhere with his rhythm of his heart. I don't know if it was an arrhythmia. But uh, they performed the procedure there out in Southern California. So he's certainly on the mend. I don't know if he's going to play this year. You would think he wouldn't. I mean, why? Jeez. I, and he's a key piece. We understand he's a veteran in this league. He's played starting off of Florida back over the 2003. Then with Vancouver. Now here with St. Louis. Won a cup last year after all these years in the league. You would think that he is not going to perform throughout the rest of the year. So it'll be interesting to see if the Blues pick up any defensive help with the trade deadline a week away. You also had this issue in Colorado at the Air Force Falcon Stadium between the Kings and Avalanche. And I don't know what the league, they they screwed this up royally, where they say it takes 45 minutes to get to, I guess, from Denver. But because of traffic, parking, and the unexpected, I guess it's the scope of this whole thing, that there were people in four-hour traffic jams, that people that left at 3.30, they missed the first period and a half. That people actually left the game early because they knew they had to deal with traffic coming back. I, what was the NHL doing here? I mean, did they not do their research to figure out that this was not maybe not a good idea? Was this a scenario where there's just pretty much one road or one major highway that gets there and then there's whatever side streets to get to the stadium? I mean, it is an Air Force. It's not as if it's, uh, you know, you're going to... Coors Field or to Invesco where they probably should have had the game and I guess they wanted to have a different setting Do it, let's do it on an Air Force base to have a little bit more uh, patriotism to show our nation's military to be front and center here and I get that and that's a great idea but if the NHL didn't do their homework as far as looking at the possibility of what it would be like to get traffic in there I don't know how I don't know how many seats that stadium holds I don't know if it's 40,000, 50,000 whatever it is but they certainly had to pay a little bit more attention to that. And we get that if their Air Force plays there and they have games that, but are they selling out? I mean, what is it? And the hockey fans are going to be different than the Air Force college football fan. So they really screwed that up. And it obviously took precedence over the game, it seemed, because I couldn't even tell you who won the game. Because obviously the nightmares you're hearing from all the participants the people who had driven out there a lot of the public and all you heard was just terrible quotes that listen I had to walk an hour just to get to the stadium or geez I left my house at 3 30 and I got in there at the second intermission I mean that's a joke I mean that's a despicable there's no way the NHL should allow that and of course they're asking for refunds and if the NFL or excuse me if the NHL is smart they will go ahead and refund all those guys and even give them a voucher to a future avalanche game why not you want to talk about good PR? That would be the PR thing to do. Give him a refund, and here's a voucher for however many tickets. You bought one ticket, two tickets, or ten tickets. Here's a voucher for a future Avalanche game. If it can't be this year, then next year. That would be a way to take care of your fans. And then you also had a firing in the NHL. Another one. Remember we talked about that? What was it? About three, four weeks ago? About you had seven coaches fired. So far this season, or eight, or whatever it was. Well, now you had another one in Minnesota where Bruce Boudreau, who's the former Capitol and Anaheim Duck coach, he gets the axe. They didn't even have it. I didn't even know who the interim is. They didn't even say that. I got to go back and look. But the crazy thing is, is that this is a team that had underachieved, but were in the middle of a little bit of a playoff surge as they were 7-3-1. and one, 
and climb within three points of the second wild card in the West. And they said, well, you know what, Bruce? Sorry, that's not enough. Goodbye, here's your pink slip. What could you say? Another coach walks the plank here in the NHL. And with the trade deadline a week away, who knows? I'm sure there'll be another coach that's on the hot seat between now and then. And let's see if any team brings in uh, some reinforcements. And speaking of reinforcements, the Devils are purging off players as if it's going out of style. You had the Devils trade Blake Coleman, their forward, who's actually had a very good year this year, to Tampa for a prospect, a 19-year-old kid named Nolan Foote, and their number one pick this year, which is actually Vancouver's pick. So if Vancouver doesn't make the playoffs, they'll keep their pick, but the Devils will get the Canucks 2021 first-round pick. And then also the Islanders acquired Andy Green, who's their longtime defenseman, been there 14 years, also captain in the last five. The Islanders, which they need goal scoring in the worst way, but I understand with Adam Pellick's injury to his Achilles and just having a stabilizer back there as far as a stay-at-home defenseman is concerned, they uh, got him from the Devils for David Quenville and a 2021 second-round pick. Now, he's an unrestricted free agent after this year. Who knows if the Islanders are going to even think about signing him. But you wonder, Lamorello... His connection with the Devils was able to get him, but they need some goal scoring in the worst way. Now, I don't know how they're going to get it. Yeah, I haven't tried to fish for some rumors and for some players that could be on the move here. And maybe because it's still a week out, I haven't gotten enough. But uh, be sure to check any of my social media accounts, which I'll get to later on, to see what could be the latest and greatest as far as player movement is concerned in the NHL as 3 p.m. next week will approach. Uh, But as of right now, I couldn't dig up anything else. So that's what we have there with the NHL. And uh, pretty much with the league, I know the Bruins, they've certainly been playing very well here. Uh, They beat the Rangers there yesterday. I know it was one of the national games that uh, you had seen there on uh, NBC. So as I pull up the uh, NHL standings in the East, the Bruins currently at the top there with 86 points. The Metropolitan is interesting now because you have a situation where the Penguins, and they've been on fire. Pretty much, even before Sidney Crosby got back. But once Crosby has been back in the fold and you have the Penguins who are now nipping at the Capitals' heels, they're just one point behind them for first place in the division. And the Islanders who have now gotten back into the three slot, remember they've been flip-flopping with Columbus and even the Flyers for that matter for the wild card. But it's just a slight margin of error in the fact that they actually are tied with Columbus but because they have three games in hand, Columbus has already played 60 games, the Islanders 57, which bodes well for them. But the Islanders right now are currently in the three seed where Columbus is at 72, the Flyers at 71, and then you have Carolina at 70. And if you want to throw in the Florida Panthers at 66, that's what you have there in the East. And you also have Tampa Bay in the Atlantic slowly but surely creeping up there. Remember last week they were, had won six in a row and we talked about winning stretches and playing at the peak of their powers, wondering at that this stretch of their season, are they getting to a point where they've actually hit their peak and they're just going to start to regress? Well, Tampa now is on a 10-game winning streak. And as much as I've said that Pittsburgh is nipping on the heels of the Caps, same for Tampa. Now, they're three points behind them as far as the top spot in the division as well as the league. But Tampa certainly will not be cooled off. And uh, they've been playing as good as anybody has in the league. When now we take our attention to the Western Conference, the Blues are currently tied with the Dallas Stars as Dallas is now starting to make some moves here. Now the Blues, ever since the Bo Meester thing, they've gone on this losing streak here. They've lost now five in a row. And since then, I believe they've lost three in a row. In fact, come to think of it, 
The makeup game, because that incident with Bo Meester happened happen in the first period, the makeup game isn't until the 11th of March where the Blues will go out to Anaheim to make up that game. But St. Louis is certainly in a little bit of a free fall here as they've had a good position of first place pretty much throughout the whole year. But then also with Colorado nipping at the heels too, they have 72 points. So it's certainly making for some drama there out west. And we've talked about the Western Conference until the cows come home. Edmonton now is in first place and we've talked about it. It doesn't matter where you are. Vancouver last week was in first place. And we all know that they could go from first to fifth. But the Oilers, who have now who have now lost their star player, Connor McDavid, for two to three weeks with a quad injury. So Edmonton's going to have to stem the tide until he gets back. But they are currently in first place. There's a point ahead of Vancouver, two points ahead of Vegas. And then you have Calgary and Arizona tied at 66. But then right behind them are Nashville and Winnipeg with 65 points. And then Minnesota, despite the fact that they've played a lot better recently, they are still... Uh, five points behind Arizona for the second wild card. So you have a, ver- a lot of interesting races here in the NHL. And unlike the NBA and even baseball to a certain extent, now we get a lot of people don't really care because it is the NHL. And if you're not one of the original six teams or one of the powerhouse teams, for instance, if you're the average sports fan or just even just a casual hockey fan, uh, do you really care what's happening in the Pacific Division out West or even in the Central for that matter? You may care a little bit more about the East because of obviously your allegiance, whether you're an Islander fan like myself or Bruins or whatever it may be. But the NHL is going to have some fascinating races. And to me, last week, we talked about the Western Conference as far as the Pacific Division in particular. But now it looks like with Tampa starting to rise to the top and even the Penguins, the way they've played, St. Louis coming back to the pack, Colorado and Dallas, and the way the Pacific has gone. I mean, this is certainly what the NHL, they must be doing backflips right now. Because the, this is the one league that has a lot more competitive balance than pretty much any of the leagues here in the four major sports. We know basketball is top heavy. Baseball, for the most part, is top heavy. NFL, predominantly top heavy. But, you know, listen, Tennessee, the Titans made it to a conference championship game. But the NHL, doesn't matter. And we've seen it time and time again. All you got to do is look back to last year. Tampa Bay had, what, 128 points in a regular season and got swept in the first round. So the NHL is uh, certainly firing on all cylinders here and good for them as they uh, try to make themselves that much more relevant but here on the forefront of the winter sports as we uh, trudge on through the month of February. Uh, let's see what else we got. A couple of things to wrap up here <clears throat> Excuse me, before we uh, bid adieu. I'll try to do this in fast and furious order. I'll get the college basketball out of the way. You had a couple of losses over the weekend where Louisville loses to Clemson. And then Seton Hall had the 10th overall. They lose to Providence. And you can't forget Auburn, they also lost. So you had three of your top 11 teams lose over the weekend. Uh, Providence-Seton Hall was actually kind of close. And Seton Hall's had a phenomenal year this year in the Big East. But when you have those three teams, and the recent rankings have not come out yet. So you have your 5, your 10, and 11 fall. And you would think that with those teams falling, you're going to have a few teams moving up in the rankings. So I'm pulling up the latest rankings. They'll probably come out sometime this afternoon. As I record this, it's uh, early in the morning here in the Northeast. Yeah, pretty much everything is still the same as far as last week's rankings are concerned. So I'm sure at some point today, you're not going to see Louisville. You're not going to see Seton Hall and Auburn. They're all going to drop, especially the first two from the top 10. And Auburn will certainly drop down probably into the teens. So college basketball, as we know, is going to continue to be just a flip-flop of seedings and rankings. And 
We're just trying to get to Selection Sunday, people, because right now, the college basketball season, I, I couldn't even sit down to watch five minutes of a college basketball game. You know, there's so many other things going on, and college basketball is not, it doesn't grip my attention. It certainly doesn't grip it like it once did. And I, of course, I'm on top of it. I got to, because that's how I got to relay this to everybody that's out there listening. But again, with everything else that's going on, how can I pay attention to college basketball? So that's what we have there. As far as the XFL is concerned, I know week two just came and went. You have the DC Guardians. I believe they're the only undefeated team in the XFL as of right now. They're 2-0. They actually shut out the Guardians the other day of New York. 27-0. Embarrassed them. They had this big brawl on the field after a turnover and just some some cheap blocks down the field. And therefore, both benches cleared. Got a little bit ugly there, which I'm sure the league does not want to see right now because what they're trying to do is attract fans, not uh, certainly have them turn their back on them. But uh, right now, after two games, your team is D.C., I know the L.A. team, who was now 0-2, they scored on the three-point play, which is the first in the history of the league, or of course the short history, two weeks it is, which I believe a three-point play is from the 10-yard line, but uh, that certainly was for naught because they didn't win, and still, a lot of the feedback is positive, right, is it NFL caliber? No, it's certainly not an unwatchable product, which is good for the XFL after two weeks. Uh, but right now, D.C. looks like your strong team. But again, they play both of their games at home to start the season. So now they'll finally hit the road. And we'll see how they fare there. So that's what you got there with the XFL. And a couple of news and notes before I get to the big one in the NFL. Josh Norman was released from Washington, which is interesting because of Ron Rivera, his old coach at Carolina. He comes in, but then Norman, who I believe is on the last year of his deal, he gets uh, shown the door. He's not the same player that he once was, an All-Pro in 2015, the year they went to the Super Bowl, but I'm sure he could be a, an asset to some team that needs a corner. Also, there's a lot of these stupid rumors about Brady going to Dallas. If Jerry Jones is going to entertain the thought of bringing a 42-year-old Tom Brady, despite the fact that they got a great offensive line and a, a stout running game, uh, you got to be off your rocker. Just pay Dak Prescott. Just build that running game to the point where Prescott is not going to Throw games away. And I'm not trying to minimize Prescott because he does have talent and can play in the league. But the thing is, when you're Jerry Jones and it's all about getting the headline, it's all about getting that guy, it's all about wanting to bring more stars to your team. And I understand as of late, it hasn't been like that. You know, it's not the old team where, hey, let's bring in Dion, let's bring in a bunch of other players. Here, you have your team intact. You just have to pay the man. Now, you also got to pay a wide receiver too because Amari Cooper is going to be a free agent. And the NFL season starts, what, March 8th? So in about three weeks, when I say season, the off season, because you have the combine coming up this weekend, I believe. So if you're Jerry Jones, you can't even let that be a thought in your mind. You'd be off your rock if you do that, Jerry Jones. And we'll just pretty much reinforce everything that I said with J.D., on my program about a month ago, he just needs to stay the hell out of the way. Let the powers that be, whomever runs that organization, we all know it's Jerry Jones, but have those people, even to a certain extent, Mike McCarthy, just deal with it and put his trust in them and not get his nose involved and try to butt in and say, oh no, I think we should bring in Tom Brady. Stop. But the big news, I'm going to try to make this concise to people because you know this is going to strike a chord being a Steeler fan. But what in the hell was Roger Goodell thinking and the powers that be in the NFL and Miles Garrett for him to be reinstated? Now, mind you, he missed, what was it, the last six games of the year? Six, seven games, whatever it was. 
And we all know the incident. We don't have to rehash it. But I don't understand. They want to make a statement. Okay, they gave him the rest of the year. Fine. That statement should have been eight games. I understand you're not going to give him the first eight games of the 2020 season. All right, that'd be a little harsh. Would it be worthy of it? Borderline because of the despicable lack that he did on the field. But for the NFL to try to make a statement and then to have this meeting when the rumor had it, even, what was it, I guess it's last Wednesday, Thursday, that that Miles Garrett is going to go see Roger Goodell and company to see if he could get his suspension uplifted. I thought to myself, wait a minute, are they really going to do this? And sure enough, they did. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, way to go there, NFL. Way to go there, Roger Goodell. As if they forgot that he actually took a helmet and swung it on the back of a quarterback's head. Now, I understand it's Mason Rudolph. It wasn't Ben Roethlisberger, but still. So that was a joke. So, so much for a statement there. And then, 14 seconds after he's reinstated, I have to watch an ESPN Outside the Lines interview with Miles Garrett saying that Mason Rudolph called me the N-word. And he came out and said, well, I've never used the word either in a, a, a GA form or an ER form. And he called me a stupid N-word. And I know what he said. And, oh, it's over and done with. And, well, it's over and done with. Why are you bringing this up? And not only that, and I have to throw this in the mix, people, and it's not a Steeler bias by any stretch. A, revisionist history. If he did hear it, why didn't he say that in the postgame minutes after the game took place and the incident took place? And I get that maybe emotions ran high and he didn't want to say anything or whatever. But just days after that, Mason Rudolph came out with a statement and said, no, I did not call him that. I'll say it to, the, to my grave, etc. I'm exaggerating, of course. And then, of course, the day after Mason Rudolph comes out with his statement, that's when Miles Garrett came out and said, oh, yeah, he did call me that. Which just goes to show you that he's just out in left field somewhere. Put that all aside. When asked, his teammates, his quarterback, the coaching staff, even Mike Tomlin came out and said yesterday, in the moments after that game, even in the days after that game, that he was in contact with the Browns to be sure that that wasn't said, not one coach player or any of their personnel came out and said that a racial slur was stated on the field whether by Mason Rudolph or anybody for that matter but in particular Rudolph that there was no evidence there was nothing not one iota so now Miles Garrett because he's reinstated now he feels like he could come out and just say this I mean that's an absolute joke and you see that's shame on the NFL they can't get out of their own way because if he was still suspended this interview probably would have been thrown in the trash it wouldn't have been brought to the surface and if they said, nope, sorry, your suspension is still indefinite. We gave you the last six, seven games of 2019. And we're not going to uplift the suspension until we feel that it's absolutely right. So guess what? They bring him back in. This interview comes out. And this whole thing has to rear its ugly head. It's an absolute, it's an abomination. And Miles Garrett, I tell you, boy. Oh, my God. Well, I can't wait for that schedule to come out when Cleveland's going to be in Pittsburgh. Woo! Now, that would have been must-see TV. Last year, but remember, the game was just two weeks afterwards, so Pouncey didn't play in the game. Obviously, Garrett was gone. But boy, th- those games are going to be absolute grudge matches. Oh. But you know, hey, that's Garrett for you, and he wants to be a buffoon, then so be it. Because that, that's, just a, uh, that's just inexplicable. It just is. And right, I'm not judge, jury, and execution of people. I get that. But just, just think about it. Just think about what I said. If he was still suspended, this interview, ESPN probably would have just burned it. Or maybe they would have put it on the shelf until he got reinstated. But then for what? They would have probably either 
sent another reporter out there, whatever. But then his own players, coaches, personnel, they came out and said, nope, nothing was said on the field like that. So, and I even have the tweet. I saved it on purpose. And I have actually posted it on my Twitter account for those who don't believe me or for those who want to see for themselves. Go on the Twitter account and see that the players said, nope, there was no evidence. Uh, we didn't hear of anything Mason Rudolph saying to Miles Garrett about a racial slur. And here it is back again. Just when we thought Joaquin Phoenix was the Oscar winner for the Joker, well, they should split that award and give it to Miles Garrett. That's all I'll say about that. All right, now let's wrap up here, people. Let's get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week, and this is for a different deal, so just bear with me. Dwayne Wade is my hero of the week, and not because of the events that took place in Chicago. Obviously, the ceremony, Kobe Bryant, and also, as I said, with Common and the, him rapping about Dwayne Wade, the kid from Chicago, etc. But got to give it up for Dwayne Wade in this regard about his daughter, who is now considering himself to be a she. And we understand the climate and the way the world is today that a decision, or not even just a decision, but just for someone to identify themselves as what they in their heart and soul truly feel like what they are, of course it gets frowned upon, of course it gets looked at as freakish or unusual, whatever it may be. But for his son to now say no, that I'm actually a girl, and for him to not only support his daughter, but also to speak to people, to do some research, to do some background, to get that full support, that's as commendable as it possibly can be. And you would think it's automatic. Because that's the person you brought into the world that right away that if they choose not to be or they feel that that's not what they're growing up or that's what they should be, that right away, oh, it's going to get frowned upon that that person or that his child's going to be disowned. But no, he put the ignorance and all that aside and realized that, hey, I certainly want to support my daughter 100% and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And you know what? Kudos to you, my man. That's why you're my hero of the week. And my zero of the week, I know this is pretty weak. I could have said Miles Garrett, but you know, obviously I had to say a little bit more about that. And it's not because of the decision that they made yesterday. And Lord knows I wouldn't follow it if it's in my own backyard. But the Daytona 500 is now, maybe as I'm speaking, in progress. And we all know the Daytona 500 is the Super Bowl of NASCAR. And with the rain yesterday, they had to postpone it. And I'm not trying to knock them for it because the last thing you want is to have just an accident of epic proportions totally get that but just knowing that that it puts to a monday of course they can't put it to the following week because then with the hotel rooms and just the tv networks and everything they can't prolong it any further than what it is but you would think that they would have some sort of plan that if it's not going to work for this week that they could postpone it to next week but the only thing i could see say for the nascar fan i know it's got to be tough because i'm sure you're looking forward to watching that on fox sitting at home with your food and beverage and kicking back and watching it. And now you probably, if you're not working today, that's great because it is a holiday. But if you are at the job and you have to stream it on your phone or on your laptop or whatever it may be, I'm sure that that just, let's flat out call it as it is. It sucks. But it's just a zero in a sense where as big as an event that that is, that they handled it the right way, but you're not able to see it on where it should be on a Sunday at home, so that's why I'm leaving. It's it's again, it's weak sauce. I get it, people, but that's going to be my zero of the week. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed, and I entertained you over the last hour plus. 
rabbling, ranting, everything that's going on here with the world of sports. If you like what you heard or if you've been with me for quite some time listening to these podcasts week after week, I implore you people to go ahead and subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcast, whether you listen to them on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary. I'm on all these various platforms. All it does, people, it just takes a second. On your phone, hit subscribe and then just scroll down, leave a review, add a rating, four stars, five stars, whatever it may be. I'd be greatly appreciative of it. And the reason why I ask you to do so is because that's going to increase the visibility of this podcast with so many others that are out there and then generate interest for those who may not know who I am that if they see me moving up the ranks and they say, wait a minute, J-Real's podcast, that does sound kind of familiar. Because whether that's to the former athlete, current athlete, the broadcaster, sports writer, the blogger, whatever it may be, for those people to kind of identify with who I am because I am the low man on the sports totem pole here when it comes to podcasts, but that's all right. Doesn't matter. I'm going to continue to put forth the best work I possibly can. And with your contribution, we'll certainly enhance that. So please, people, do so at your earliest convenience. You can also follow me on any of my social media accounts, whether it's on Instagram, J Reels, or Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. The J Reels Podcast, my fan page on Facebook, as well as an email, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'll follow up, guys. I'll reply. I'm usually pretty active on all those sites, except for the Gmail, because obviously you got to send me an email in order for me to send one back. You get how that goes. And then lastly, if you want to support the podcast as far as contributions is concerned, when it comes to the production of this podcast, the equipment, possibly some advertising, marketing down the road, you could do so on my Patreon page at www.p, as in Paul, A-T, as in Tom, R-E-O-N. As a nancy.com slash the J Reels podcast. Again, forever grateful and thankful for everything that you do for listening to this podcast. Please get the word out, take a screenshot, send it to your friends, tag me on it, whatever it may be. Because as you all know, I love to deliver the sports goods on a weekly basis and hopefully twice a week when it comes to anything on the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are. J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.